This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. Being poor is hard work. You learn how to get the hustle, the hookup. You never can get your footing and focus on stability, opportunity, and prosperity. And in 20 weeks, we give you the three things that the people on this call take for granted, an education, skills, and a social network. And that is really what the game is today. If we're going to move the needle, and I think unify this country as well, because so many people feel left out. I'm Faith Saley. Welcome back to another season of Real Good. This show started out because we had a desire to find the bright lights in a dark time, to give the mic to people doing important work for underrepresented communities at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. What we saw was that the problems the folks on the ground were working to solve weren't the result of COVID. They were deep-seated, intergenerational, and intersectional issues that were merely being highlighted by the virus's impact. So we broadened our scope to find people who were working to change the way the world worked for disadvantaged communities, to speak to the people leading the way toward a more equitable future. Let's hear their stories. This week, our guest is Lewis King, president and CEO of Summit Academy OIC. To say that our economy isn't quite set up for the success of Black communities and people of color would be a wild understatement. Money is security, a measure of success, a way to provide for our families. But the systems in place to provide high-paying jobs advantage those already in power, people who tend to be white. In a world where people of color often need to jump through hoops to make an equal living, Folks like Lewis King are offering opportunity, dignity. Happy New Year, Faith. How are I'm, you? I'm okay. I'm all things considered, I'm okay. Just okay. And how are you? Yeah, same. Uh, Good. Doing okay, all things considered, but optimistic as always. You know me. I do. I do. And I know that it's been, I've almost known you for two years. <laughs> That's we, crazy. I, I, yeah, we were we were brought together, and we've seen each other in person once I, in the two. Years. I know it's we crazy. were brought together for a show about COVID nineteen, and now we're at yeah. COVID twenty two, um, and, and we have, you know, <laughs> we were brought together for a show about COVID nineteen, but of course we broadened our discussion out to societal inequities and and the people working for mm-hmm. underrepresented communities, and. You and I have spoken so much about the lessons to take into a post-COVID world, but we're not in a post-COVID world. We're in a new era of the pandemic. And so as you and I talk here in the beginning of 2022, as you know, we're now at COVID case numbers higher than what we saw when, when you and I yeah. originally met. And I just wonder, how do, you, how do you look at the conversations we've had over the past couple of mm. years and take those lessons into a new era of the pandemic? I think it, it well, it's such a powerful question. I, for me, Faith, I, I think it just reinforces the, the interconnectedness of, uh, of us all, you know, is, is just our shared humanity. I mean, this, you know, this pandemic has done nothing but um, made me appreciate how it hasn't discriminated against you know, anyone, it is something that is part of our shared existence, our shared humanity. And in a really strange way, although we have all been quarantined and separated and 
interacting with, with each other over a screen, I feel a different level of um, uh, uh, proximity, intimacy maybe, because we've been invited into each other's homes, into, I remember one of our conversations, I think you were, you were uh, actually doing it from your daughter's bedroom yep. or something. You know what I mean? Like, So were you, Greg. I was in my daughter's bedroom <laughs> as well, right? So my, I guess my point in all of that is I just feel there's a, there's a certain um, intimacy and proximity and a, a level of understanding of each other um, that have happened in ways that we haven't had before. Like we're no longer, you know, titles, we're first names and, you know, all of these things. I think if there is a silver lining, that's probably been it for me. You know, it's interesting that you point out that COVID doesn't, of course, discriminate, because when you and I first started talking in, in the spring of 2020, we were talking about how COVID was disproportionately affecting communities of color. Yeah. And and yes. I don't know that that's especially true right now. I think it remains true for this reason, Faith. I think it it continued to highlight, particularly for those, and as I think about my business and the industry that I'm in and, and, and other businesses where you are forced to interact with the public, you know, disproportionately um, people of color in particular are on the front lines. Yes. You know, they are in industries that require far more personal human interaction. And I don't have the statistics to validate or dispute what you just said, but I do, I do know that disproportionately those folks who are working on the front line who tend to be more often than not people of color um, that there's going to be a disproportionate impact that, there. That's absolutely right. That the, that the effects and the and the impact is yeah. felt disproportionately by people yeah. of color, and those people are often the kind of workers. That's uh, of course you make a perfect segue. Those people are often the kind of workers that our friend and guest today, Lewis King, um, works with and and helps educate and elevate. Is that fair to say, Lewis? It is fair to say. Um, and is it fair to call you my friend already? Please do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Lewis and Greg. Uh, this time of day, I'm everybody's friend. <laughs> <laughs> then we're lucky. Um, Lewis and Greg, tell me how y'all have connected. Greg? Wow. Do you want me to go? For, I don't even know. I, you know, Lewis is somebody. And first of all, Lewis, let me say thank you so much for it's so great to have you on. And um to be able to share your story and, and your work with our listeners and, and with Faith. Um, you know, Lewis and I are both a product of the Atlanta University Center, Faith, so you'll appreciate that. Um, Lewis, Faith is yeah, from Yeah, there's Atlanta always originally. an Atlanta connection. There's always an Atlanta connection. And congratulations to your, your Georgia Bulldogs. I don't know if you're <laughs> proud of them or not, but... I'm still um, celebrating the Braves. <laughs> are you still celebrating <laughs> But Lewis went to Morehouse, I went to Clark, and so we shared that. And so, you know, in the work that we were both doing in the community in and around here in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, um, our paths just our paths just continue to, to cross. And, you know, we've always just been such incredible supporters of each other in the work that we were jointly doing um, and independently doing. Um, Lewis is a pillar in our community and somebody who um, has really catalyzed community who has created opportunity for those who were um, who were left out um, of the opportunities um, in an equitable way. And we as an organization, through every company I've ever worked for, we've been supporters of the work, and I know he'll talk about it, of the work that Lewis is doing to really help close 
<clears throat> the labor market gaps and to close disparities in the labor market. So I'm just honored to have him on and pleased to have him on and excited for you all to hear his story. And for me, uh, you know, Greg's always kind of been there and then find out that he went to Clark and, you know, we got to know each other. And then he went from Target to U.S. Bank. And, you know, I don't um, make my career trying to have a zillion partners. I only have a few. And U.S. Bank is one of them. And Greg has always been there. So it makes the job fun. He understands uh, kind of the same Right of passage I went through from teenage to adult, and I don't have to explain it to him. I am going to ask you to explain it to me. I, I, I want to know about your rites of passage and how you came to be doing what you're doing. But, but before we dig into that, let's explain to folks a little bit about um, what, what you do. Um, you are the president and CEO of Summit Academy, and then it only took a teensy bit of research to realize that you've just got promoted like you still have new promotion smell it's um you you are also the president and ceo of oic of america is that right right i am president and ceo of oic of america let's pause if you you don't mind uh, because it took me a minute to figure out what oic stands for and you can say it better opportunities industrialization centers got it founded by reverend leon sullivan in 1967 out in Philadelphia, we uh, black folks were eating all the tasty cakes, but they couldn't drive the tasty cake truck. They couldn't work in the tasty cake bakery, and they couldn't sell tasty cakes out of the tasty cake store. So, Dr. Sullivan says, "Stop eating tasty cakes," and they did, and it brought tasty cakes to their knees. And they said, "What do you want?" He said, "Jobs." He said, "They said what?" Can you do? He said, "Nothing." And so they sold him a jail, an abandoned jail for a dollar, and he started the first uh, OIC, which really a play on the words, right? What do you people want? Work, OIC, right? It's <laughs> opportunities and justification centers, right? So um, at their heyday, they were up to 150 across the nation. Uh, we're now at 31 in 19 states. Uh, to give you an example, we have five in Connecticut, imagine that, four in North Carolina, four in Pennsylvania, three here in the Twin Cities, and then Spatted throughout in rural and urban, red and blue states. I've been running Summit, which is the largest in the nation at 15 million. I was president and CEO whoa, until whoa, January. Whoa, 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 Lewis, 15 million what? $15 million annual budget. Wow. Okay. And and when you say yes. running these places, the, these, are, uh, these are educational centers? Vocational training schools, some offer GED programs. We also do youth programs as well. The main thing is to put people to work. At Summit, we believe the best social service program in the world is a job. We offer 20 weeks of training at no out-of-pocket costs. Plus, we give you about $3,000 pocket money while you're there. We started that during COVID. And we're dominant trainer in construction, um, IT, and we also have a healthcare component. And we have a STEM district so that we can get the workers of the future uh, prepared to go forward today. So you just answered one of my questions when you mentioned your 20 weeks training program, because I saw that you wrote a guest essay 
in the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal. And the sentence it began with, before I hit the paywall, it was a real cliffhanger. You said, 20 weeks is all it really takes to take someone from poverty to middle class. That's astonishing. Well, um, or maybe it's not. Let me give you let me give you an example. Right. Um, In construction, we help build all three stadiums. Guys coming in were averaging 70 percent of people are unemployed. Uh, Average income, 10 bucks. Well, the minute you go into a union job, you today you're at twenty dollars an hour. We just placed app developers with U.S. Bank. Thank you, Greg, um, at sixty five thousand dollars a year. They did the training from home. They'll work from home. And it is life changing. You know, I mean, uh, being poor is hard work. You learn how to get ahead. You learn how to get the hustle, the hookup. You never can get your footing and focus on stability, opportunity and prosperity. And in 20 weeks, we give you the three things that the people on this call take for granted in education, skills and a social network. And, and that is really what the game is today. If we're going to move the needle, and I think unify this country as well, because so many people feel left out. I want to find out how, how you got into this game. <laughs> you, <laughs> where, you have a background in the military, right? I could call you Major King. I'm, gonna be an, old, I'm an old major at 62, but... Here's the deal. Um, I went to Morehouse, and then I and, and then I became um, a lieutenant. Spent ten years in boots, and it was a blast. But there, I learned, um, of course, order, discipline, but also how to do good staff work. But wait, just can we pause? Because you're just sure. talking about going into the military, like it was your obvious choice to make. Why? Oh no. Wh- yeah. So where did let's let's go back before Morehouse. Where where did you grow up, and and what did you want to be? What did you want to do? Who was sure. around you? I grew up. I, I, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I lived in Bradenton. I was first man in my college to go to um, college. I'm from a family of merchant marines. I left it, my mother at 14 to go live with my grandmother. We lived in the projects with my mom. When I moved in with um, my grandmother, I went to a high school that had 2,000 black kids. And I lived in a subdivision that is biggest from Richfield to the Brooklyn Park uh, boundary with number of black homeowners. I do not understand Minnesota. When, mm-hmm. I mean, when I got off the plane, I called my grandmother up and said, I figured out where white people go when they die. <laughs> okay, everybody else go to heaven or hell. <laughs> White people go to Minnesota. I mean, I've never seen <laughs> anything like this. I went to college in Atlanta. So imagine my whole life mm-hmm. until I graduated from college at 22 was black. Mm-hmm. And that went from the the housing projects to blue collar working class to parent household families that own their homes to Morehouse where there was Spike Lee and all those guys walking around and all the rich guys. All right. And there I was. Um, and how did that shape you, do you think, that you were always surrounded by people who look like you? So so the biggest thing is they taught us who we are. You had to study um, the history of the black church. You had to study African history. That is before it came to the United States. You had to study the civil rights movement 
as it began, and you know that the first black college, Cheney State, was founded in 1837 before we were emancipated. Morehouse and Harvard Howard were founded in 1867 before poor whites had public education. This is who I come from. And then they tell you you're supposed to go out and leave. Hmm. Period. Don't just make money. You, you have a responsibility. So they did that, and then I put on boots and... Well, and the reason I went to the Army, because, again, I was partying so hard, I blew my academic ride and had to join ROTC. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I joined ROTC, and it was fun. I mean, you get to have weapons and run around in the woods and tell people what to do, and I was good at it. I was the number one cadet for Georgia Tech and the AU Center. And, um, <laughs> you know, I said, well, let's ride this on out and get paid to do it. <laughs> You found your superpower. You know what's funny about that, Lewis, is I don't know if you've ever, um, uh, God rest his soul, but Colin, uh, General Colin Powell tells a very similar story. He was a pretty average student in college, if you follow his story. And he found his true gift, um, as he talks about it, in the military. Yep. Um, Yep. That that was something he was good at. And this notion of the responsibility of leadership and how important that is in our community you know, that actually came out in the research that we did recently, Faith. I think we talked about it the last time we were on and we talked about this wealth study we did. And so often, um, you know, um, African-Americans talk about the responsibility of community yeah. and how they feel a disproportionate yeah. responsibility to community and representing a community. So I think that's so powerful, Lewis, that you, you pointed that out, too. It's funny you mentioned Colin Powell because... I got assigned to Europe. I was a battalion adjutant, the, the, the admin guy, and I got there. And the picture of the Corps commander, the three-star, wasn't on the wall anywhere. This was October 1986. Most of you weren't born yet. And so I kind of went around, and I looked for the picture, and I found it. It was under a stack of papers on my desk, and it was a black three-star general, Colin Powell. Wow. And since I was the wow. rear detachment commander, the unit was in the field. I was in charge. It made me really excited. I had his picture up in five minutes around the entire post. Of course, the next month, Iran-Contra broke, and he came back to be the national security advisor. Yeah. And subs- I met him years later when he was here doing some stuff with Art Erickson in South Minneapolis. But he was my hero um, since I was 26 years old, all right, when, when he was a three-star. And so I did the Europe. I did the Army thing. And then um, I got assigned here because I had a dispute with my branch manager and what was supposed to be a three-year tour turned into 30 years. I was, you know, I was supposed to go to Norfolk State, but I ended up at the University of Minnesota to teach ROTC. And it was the first time I lived in an American city as an adult because I went off to college at 17 and then into the Army. And it was really funny because Labor Day of 86 – I vacationed in East Berlin, got here October 1st, and by November 14th, the Berlin Wall was down, and my life um, changed forever. You had you had a degree in political science and government, right? Right. I imagine that being in the military was a, a real crash course in what actually happens on the ground from decisions made in government that you'd been studying. So the biggest thing you learn in the military is the four level as an officer, which are the executives of the 
Army, right? The NCOs, the sergeants running the Army, and the logistics do the work. Um, is that there are four levels of operation. I think that this has served me well here. As a political scientist, you studied everything from Martin Luther to um, municipal government branches levels, special governmental units like the Met Council. You understand all of that stuff in politics. But the military taught you that there's political, strategic, operational, and tactical considerations. Most soldiers are operating at the operational and tactical level, go out and do the job. Whereas strategic is always about tomorrow and positioning and political never try to make sense of it. It's all about favor, relationships and influence, not much changes from the third grade. And so <laughs> you try to make sense of politics and get logic out of it. You're gonna go mad, you'll never be successful. What you got to understand is what's the emotional base underneath it, mm. and then how do you how do you deal with that either in your favor or to counter it? And that's what I, I outside of how to do good staff work, fighting is 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 fundamental. You know, it doesn't change much except for the weapons, but the staff work and the political nature of the game. That's what I brought here, and has served me well. And because of that. I've been able to tra attract top talent who want to come and work for a place that has a very strong environment, and they've been able to be very successful. Tell me, tell me more about that. What do you, what do you think it is that you learned from your time in the military that that makes you such a successful leader at Summit? Are you saying that that kind of X factor is is the emotional? Uh, the, sort of your your in, intuitive understanding of, of people's emotional uh, emotions and what they need to be inspired. No, so at the political level, you have to shape the external environment. If you listen to what politicians and what they're saying on television all the time, they're really trying to influence the mindset of the people. All right, that's policy. That's politics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Strategic, are you in the right place at the right time? Do you have partners like Mortensen and U.S. Bank? Did you choose IT before it got hot? Did you bet your money on uh, infrastructure and repairing infrastructure before tornadoes that traveled 200 miles on the ground, which ain't natural, showed up? I mean, did you position yourself, right? Now that you got all that set, you're in position, you have all the support you need, can you win? Good operations boil down to processes, procedures, protocols. Everybody knows what to do, and everybody's trained. Then the tactical piece, do you actually run the play correctly? And we have been able to attract people who are results-oriented. You know, who wants to go, um, you know, be on a team where the coach isn't thinking about winning or hasn't prepared you to win? Who wants to fight any business? Who wants to work for a business that doesn't know if it's going to make payroll or not? You're always looking over your shoulder. So it's the job of the chief executives to ensure that the environment is favorable, which is why they, why U.S. Bank got governmental relations and, you know, people that's out there in community affairs. Oh, that's political. Then strategic, you know, mm. do you have drive-throughs? Do you have ATMs? Do you have uh, – I heard Andy – 
Sesame say they weren't doing enough online, right? When you were at the holiday party, Greg. He said, That's the CEO of U.S. Bank. Yes, the CEO of U.S. Boom! Pandemic hit. U.S. Bank right in there, right? I mean, that was yeah. strategic thinking. And then you must have operators down the line who take the strategy and bring it to life and do not come back saying, we tried. No, we did. I think it's a, uh, you know, it's an important point that you're making, Lewis, and I particularly this notion of being strategic, because one of the things I think it's important for our, our listeners to appreciate is the strategic pivot that you and Summit Academy have made recently, because the history of Summit, if I'm not mistaken, had really been, and you touched on this in the beginning, is really to do job training and skills development around construction. And a few years ago, you and the leadership team made a strategic decision that we actually needed to prepare the workforce of the future and that we needed to stand up um, an IT, a digital capability. And what I think is so powerful about that is it allowed for, you know, companies like U.S. Bank and others to really support you in ways that were and continue to be aligned with our need. You are continuing to fill a need in the marketplace and this notion of, and I don't know if this is because of your military background or just your leadership capability, but this notion of being nimble and responsive is something that I think has served you and the organization incredibly well. You nailed it. We um, we operate in two spheres. Uh, your area of influence, which the things you're doing today, and your area of interest, which the senior people get paid to think about what's coming tomorrow. So we got into construction early because I wanted to deal with the black men who are not good marriage material because they don't have jobs and all they know is the gang game, right? So if they've been to jail, how do you get a craft for them that pays good money and is unforg- and is forgiving? Mm. Construction. And construction had all of the uh, affirmative action goals, and they'd all show up and go, they tried and couldn't find any. And I said, don't worry about it, I tighten you right on up. And and Greg, you remember, it, it was much gnashing of teeth, but we got them there and now everybody's happy. When I looked at the, When I looked at it in about 2017, we could begin to see the flip coming, and we decided to get in with atomic data and start doing some IT. That was just exploratory. Then you guys came along and that really compelled us to go in all in. And that's when we decided to do the STEM district faith and start with kids as young as five and bring them up in a system so that they see other people in front of them and they are following those people. Lewis, so it's always that, about seeing other people in front of you, isn't it? That's like you finding that picture of Colin Powell. How do you make someone see that, hey, c- come to Summit, give us 20 sure. weeks, and you, you're not going to be able to sleep till 11, but we're going to change your life. Right. And, and people come in three flavors, fully ready, not ready yet, never ready. All right. That's just it. So... What you have to do is build an ant trail. What is an ant trail? If you put a piece of bread on the floor, one ant shows up. You come back an hour later, there's a zillion of them. <laughs> he went and got all of his friends, right? So 
He's the trusted messenger, and that's the way that people work. There was a book called What Color Is Your Parachute mm-hmm. by Richard Bowles. It said your next job is not in your Rolodex. It's in your it, it's in your social network, and we take that for granted. So when they call white people privileged, people go, oh, I'm not privileged. I work hard. Well, you are privileged and you don't know it because you were born into certain social networks that I'm not blaming you for, but you need to know that, that you're benefiting from that. Yep. That's why the C-suite looks the way it looks. It's not that everybody else is stupid and they're geniuses. No, they just know each other and they take care of each other, which is human nature. All right. That's thing one. Thing two, don't despair. We have had it much worse. In fact, we're winning. We're making great progress. We didn't get free till 1865. By 1916, we began the Great Migration, which led to the birth of the black middle class in 1954, Brown v. Topeka, Kansas. Within 11 years, the Voting Rights Act. 43 years later, 43 years later, Barack Obama, and 12 years after he was left, Kamala Harris. The other side should be nervous. This is real. We now have political power in a way there's no turning back, which is why all the push about the secretaries of state. But we've been there before, too. We know about voter suppression. This is nothing new. So we're where we were 100 years ago. Mother Nature and the marketplace are demanding people at a rate faster than we're producing them. The birth rates have gone from four children per family down to two. Tech is exploding. Look at this call. Two years ago, only the super rich, the military, um, the the corporations were doing Zoom calls. Today, I do it with my my college and high school graduates. This takes connectivity, security, all types of things that prior to two years ago, we didn't need. Much like Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, those things are not going back in the box so this happened 100 years ago when they went from agrarian to manufacturing, didn't have enough workers, and now here we are again, but we're in a Juneteenth moment. And what do I mean by that? In Juneteenth, the slaves in Texas did not know that they were free. Today, the people don't know that the opportunity exists. Mm. So we got to double down on the ant trail. Seeing is believing, and we also have to expand to beyond urban and get out into the rural areas because they have the same issues and they are isolated economically and socially and we're being pitted against each other. So so what you've outlined is this is this moment being one of hardship for many, but also one of huge opportunity. And and what area of the economy are you both seeing as as the biggest opportunity for workers in marginalized communities? So if you if you follow one thing strategically, you win. You can't beat Mother Nature. So infrastructure, when a hurricane starts in New Orleans and exits in New York, whether you believe in climate change or not, there's a monetary cost to that. And if everybody was busy, you didn't have enough workers pr- to do the construction projects prior to the disaster, there's more opportunity. When a tornado stays on the ground for hours and travels 200 miles and destroys everything in its path, who puts that back together? Just start there. Never mind 
who builds the charging stations for the electric cars, never mind who produces the wind turbines or the solar panels. Just putting it back together is an opportunity. All right? that That's a big deal. And, then, and are those skills that people are learning at Summit Academy? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. A house is a house is a house. You know, it's just like if you learn construction, you'll eat for a lifetime. I came mm-hmm. home the other day. My basement was flooded. The plumber made all kind of money. Happy New Year. You know, <laughs> hot water heaters, washing machines, everything. We teach those skills. It's interesting because when I went to the Summit Academy website and I was looking at the frequently asked questions, you know, you talk about privilege. This is not a question I would have thought would appear on on a website where people are going to find out about education. One of the questions was, if I have a felony or criminal background, can I still apply for a program at Summit? And of course, as you know, the, the answer is, yeah, apply to one of our construction programs. Probably not a, uh, you know, IT or healthcare field. Yeah, you're not going to mean it's cybersecurity or healthcare, but we got a place for you. Yeah. I mean... You know, and many of those barriers are coming down now. All right. Uh, you know, Greg's been with me. You know, seen me over the years. I've always focused on the work and the ability to make money and bring it home. Take care of your family. Take care of the kids. Set a good example. That's what the fight with black folks has always been about in this country. We were brought here to solve a labor shortage and robbed of our wages because of that labor shortage. And then after we got free, our vote was suppressed, so we couldn't make laws that would allow us to play in the game. And the banks redlined us and did. It's always been about money. Money is at the core of the debate in the United States of America. And the racism thing really is a cloak for the greed. You got to make up things about me. Once you rob me, you got to say I'm lazy. I'm not to be trusted. I can't do this. Well, every time they say we can't do something, we produce astronauts and presidents and general officers and people like Greg and all kinds of folks. What are you talking about? As we've talked about on numerous times, Faith, and 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 what that looks like for us in particular as a bank um, in the work that we're doing with the access commitment and the support for small businesses, because, you know, the things that Lewis is talking about, um, are rarely large corporations, or most people in this country work for small, um, small businesses or, or entrepreneurs. And I think this, this shift that you're seeing, um, it's it's not really a labor shortage in my mind. It's really a labor shift. It's people who are deciding to work differently. People are deciding that the real opportunity for them is to leverage their skills in ways that benefit them directly, that allow them to create jobs in their community. And large corporations like U.S. Bank and others and the work that we're doing through our access commitment is to make sure that we are funneling and distributing resources to those small businesses so that they can be successful, so they can grow and scale and create jobs. You know, as Lewis said earlier, the best social program in the world is a job. And so, mm-hmm. you know, through through the access commitment if we can help and, and small businesses typically need a couple of things, certainly they need capital, they need capital and re- resources. Um, but they also need capacity. They also need the ability to, to build structure and to do the work to the, the operational and tactical work um, that, that Lewis was talking about. But the piece that I would underscore too, that he emphasized that's so powerful was they also need net- networks. They need access to the networks because that's how business gets done in this country. It gets done through relationships. It gets done through the networks. 
And so, so much of the work that we're doing through um, through our programming is is not only making sure that we funnel resources, but that we create access to to networking and those relationships that are so critical. That's part of the access commitment and also the rebuild and transform fund. Is that right, Greg? Yes. Right? Yeah. You know, which is um, it, it's actually the impact. It's the impact fund. And that impact fund is specifically channeling resources to, you know, third party community development, financial institutions or CDFIs, as most people refers to them. And some of it is straight capital to so that those organizations can make um, debt capital available to small businesses. But the point that you're you're underlining, um, Faith, that's important is also there are dollars to make sure that those organizations can also create opportunities for networking and relationship building as well. You know, uh, there were very powerful words on the Summit Academy website that say we do not accept defeat. We challenge cynicism, despair, despondency, and the status quo. And I wonder, Lewis, are you feeling those challenges from inside as well as outside? Like when prospective students come to you, do you have to sometimes help them push back against cynicism and despair? So um, we found we formed our ant trail, meaning most of the people who come to us come to us via word of mouth, all right? And they've been told, if you see Mr. King, take your head out, pull your pants up and smile. I yeah, did. Right. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> but Faye, you know, it's true. But you actually have to see this in action. Like if you see Lewis, and hey, Lewis, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. And please don't lose your thought. Because if you go see Lewis, what's the Tuesday stand-up meeting that you used to have when we were in person? Like if you watch the way that these attendees and students react and like they really do. I mean, these are hardest of the hardcore, you know, people who come to this organization and they almost, you know, react in ways that is, is incredibly um, powerful and, Respectful, and certainly encouraging. I'm like, sorry, yeah. Lewis. Respectful. Well, yeah. They want to be told. Pa- wait, they hold, want, they, paint they, a picture. Who, who are these people? Are these mostly people in their uh, 20s? Average age is 26. Okay. The, let's talk about the guys, right? Average age is 26. He's been to jail, been out on the block. He cannot go back out on the block with the 18-year-olds. That would be like you going back to high school, hanging out, all right? Or even back on the college campus with these little kids. He comes down. There's nothing wrong with him. He can pass the test. He's got ID in his pocket. He knows what to do. So he comes in, sits in the orientation, tries to blend in to the crowd, and that's game on. Don't ever try to blend in. Try to stand out, all right? So everybody gets that from day one, and they go on to do really well. We have over 70% completion, 90% plus placement rate. They're getting over 20 bucks an hour. If you got two people in the house, they're in the middle class. And for the superstars over in the um, IT program, 65K a week, a year, if you got anybody in the house making 20 grand, y'all over 100,000. What's the problem? Mm-hmm. The thing that's so the thing that's so powerful that um, Lewis just touched on that I, I hope people get from this is, you know, he just shared a, a couple of statistics and and uh, metrics, and I think that's really been for us at the bank and our partnership and relationship with Lewis and the entire team at Summit is they get results, and they get measurable results, and 
you know, Lewis, as you can tell, is so inspiring in, in his ability to articulate the mission and the work that he does. But at the end of the day, um, Faith, none of it matters if you don't get results. And that's what's been so powerful about our relationship is this is a, um, a leader and an organization that is actually producing results. And, you know, I just remember so many programs, and I don't know, uh, Lewis, if you're, you can speak to some of the specific programs, but there was a program that he and the organization started some time ago, Faith, called 1000 GEDs. And the whole purpose of the program was to actually take many of these same men and women that Lewis is talking about. And there were some really compelling statistics here in the Twin Cities of how many people didn't even have a GED and how that was such a barrier in terms of their ability to go forward and create, um, you know, a, a, a vibrant future for themselves. And this program, which U.S. Bank was was one of the founding underwriters, was really getting at a very specific um, issue. And I'm just, uh, Lewis would love if you would just take a moment to talk about that or other programs where sure. we could really sort of measure the results of the work that he was doing, because I think that's really important. Yeah, so here's the here, here's what we found out. 72,000 people in Hennepin County, when we did the, ran the exercise, didn't have a GED. Think, think Minneapolis, Faith. Most most of the listeners here are national, Lewis. I'm making sure they have contact. Yeah, oh, okay. Thanks. You have 72,000 adults walking around with no high school diploma or GED. Now, inside of that group, we found out there are people working at your local gym. They're working at the Quick Trip. They're doing all kinds of jobs with no high school diploma or GED. So, Greg, the one miscalculation we met made was we underestimated the number of people that you're walking by who have jobs every day with no high school diploma or GED. I bet you half the people coming to the program have a job, but they can't get promoted, can't go anywhere, they're stuck. So instead of just letting them do it at their own pace, Faith, we bring them in. They're there from 8.30 to 2.30, 10 weeks. If you finish you if you finish the 10 weeks, you have a 95% chance of passing your GED. The the theme throughout this conversation today is is this is this piece of the puzzle which is the social network. It it keeps coming back to it it's so much bigger than learning skills. It's so much bigger than being given a loan, right? Or some kind of temporary financial support. It's it's it, everything. It, it it's you know and, and Greg made a good point. If you're a stockbroker and you get a book that doesn't have anybody in it, it's going to buy it. You're not going to go far, right? That's why valuations on businesses look at your client base, okay? It's the same thing in life. Greg, of course you're right. These societal changes historically have taken a long time. And we're in this moment when political and economic history seems to have changed speeding up, but but workforce equality is not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Um, it, 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 you know, even 20 weeks seems super fast, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. but, but we have a long way to go. So what are first steps that companies and educational systems and individuals can take right now to kickstart progress toward the long-term goal, goal of equality in the workforce? Um, it, go ahead, Greg. Well, it, it, it's simply making the, making the commitment faith is to having, um, great intention around the work 
in understanding that this is not about a destination. The the work is the journey, or the journey is the work. However you want, to, however you want to think about that, and the intention is what's important now, and the intention has to be tied to your core business operations, which is why we started the access commitment to begin with. When we started to think about our core competency as a financial services institution and what we could bring to the table to help to close some of these racial wealth disparities, this notion of creating access um, and opportunity and closing the racial wealth gap is a place where we could make a difference. And the second component of it, Faith, is you have to have um, a system of holding yourself accountable and where stakeholders, whether they be your employees or external stakeholders, can also hold you accountable to progress. Because it's one thing to have um, intention. It's one thing to make public statements about what you're going to do. But if there's nobody, we, we, we operate in a society where accountability is critical. Um, and if nobody's holding you accountable, there's no incentive to make progress or to make change. And so we are going to be publishing um, the middle of uh, the, later this spring, um, we are actually going to be putting out publicly our theory of change, um, which will include, you know, our, our broad um, and specific metrics around the access commitment, um, our key initiatives and how we're measuring success. Are we actually accomplishing the things that we set out to do? And I think nothing else matters. It's not about outputs. It's about outcomes. And so those are just a couple of, you know, things that companies can do is to make sure that you've got real intention around it and that there are systems for, you know, the broader community and all stakeholders to hold you um, and your efforts accountable. Um, I think those are a couple of things that I think are important in the short term. Lewis, you, you talked about how just, just so much of the story of suppression, if not all of it, the story of suppression of black people comes down to money. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that the number of black Americans in the workforce has grown faster than, um, than the group at large. But the median wage growth for black workers has grown three times slower than the total workforce. What do we do about that? To what Greg said earlier, you can't just bring people in, put them in the lowest jobs, and then don't really integrate them into the culture of the organization. You got to take them to lunch. You got to take them mm -hmm. to happy hour. You got to take them golfing. There's got to be at least one black face in the locker room at the country club because that's where the deals are done on the golf course. And if I'm not there, I'm not a member. I'm left out of all the deals. And the CEO comes out and makes these proclamations, then goes back to the C-suite where everybody looked just like him. And they're all looking at him going, we want to be you. You out of your mind if you think we're bringing other people up in here hard as I work to get this job. And I got all my people behind me that's waiting to take my job. We got to crack it. So what will it take? It will take leadership. It will take risk-taking. It'll take the things that you hear Greg talking about. But more than anything, what we've demonstrated is that if you open the door, we'll hold the door open, the ant trail will come in, and we'll produce people like Chenault and those other Fortune 500 folks. And the, and the, and the first independence, you know, the banks got together to bring a black bank to town, and we'll grow a black indigenous and indigenous black middle class in, in, in Minnesota that um, 
that we that we um that we that we have happening around here. We have to have people for people to see so that they want to do it. I want everyone to know that um, that Lewis King was just CEOing while giving us an answer. (laughs) He was completely multitasking like a boss. Didn't skip a word. Um, Look, I I know we don't have that much time left. I want to ask you, Lewis, what makes you most emotional about what you do? When you see a person coming in that has nothing and they're putting their hopes in you and, you know, when they go back home at the end of the dance, you either taught us something or you didn't. You either got them a job or you didn't. So to see them later, to hear their stories where they had no hope, they were just down and out, and now they've joined something that's bigger than them. That's that to me all day long, every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a family. I, I, I got to take care of them. But this is what this is what I was built to do, and it's a blast. It is a hundred percent blast to see somebody able to take care of their families and not have to rely on um, handouts and charity or crime. When are you gonna run for president? Mm-mm. Oh, Greg, wouldn't you vote for President King? That's such I, a nice I think name. I already did write his name in on a couple of elections already. <laughs> Listen, Lewis, I I completely understand why you were named one of uh, 2021's most admired CEOs. Um, thank you for uh, for challenging cynicism, despair, despondency, and the status quo. And Greg, will you just keep introducing me to your friends? <laughs> Always, always, my friend. And it, this was such a pleasure to have uh, Lewis. It was such a pleasure to have you such on. Such a and pleasure, I, Lewis. Uh, such could not be more Lewis. grateful. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Major. Bye now. Thank you, Major <laughs> King. Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. 